Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, a podcast for people who love to learn about the British Army, its enemies and their battles. As regular listeners will know, the purpose of this podcast and YouTube channel is to remember forgotten historical events and to rescue these brave men from the dustbin of history. If you like what you hear, please do comment and subscribe as it will really help others to find the show. The year is 1879 and white troops are struggling and being beaten in southern Africa. Except this time, it isn't by the Zulus. In fact, the conflict we're examining today is a fascinating little-known war fought between the British-dominated Cape government and Chief Morose's Baputi people in what is now southern Lesotho. Before we crack on, I just want to give you a little bit of extra background information. The Baputi clan were technically vassals of the Basutu king, who were the dominant tribe in this area of southern Africa. But the Baputi chief, Murosi, had an independent streak a mile wide and didn't wish to be controlled either by the whites or by the Sutu king up in Maseru. He was a cattle raider of note. Murosi was the sort of man that colonial authorities feared and loathed. In the late 1870s, as the Cape government tried to flex their muscles over the region and enforce a series of unpopular policies, a clash was inevitable. Historian and friend of the show, Camp Simpson, is writing a book about the war right now and joins me today to explain the background to the fighting, the course of the conflict, the key characters and why Chief Morosi and his Baputi warriors should be held in high esteem for their brave deeds. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. There's so much cracking information here from Cam. It was a war that dragged on and cost the Cape government a lot of blood and treasure. I started off by asking Cam to explain the reasons for the war in this remote area of southern Africa. What kicked it off? A number of things. There's always a number of things. It's never any just one thing. So, you know, I know you've talked about this before, the priest. Um, Peace um, Preservation Act, which came in in August 1878. You know, basically the nutshell of that is we want the weapons taken off all the natives, everybody, that, no so matter this, how... This, we, this was the Cape government who said this, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is even Walmsley scoffed at it. He said, you know, there's going to be no end of wars out of this one. Um, so that was you know, looming in the background. Um, and then Morosi, the man himself, always wanted to be independent. Um, he, you know, he, he was a vassal of the um, Basutu, and I'll get a little bit more into him specifically in a minute, but he wanted these independence and the magisterial districts, you know, that, that they, the Cape government operated with, you know, from 1868, when they um, took over Basuto land, they started to impose magistrates. And Morosi had one in his territory from 1871. And it was a guy called John Austin, who's um, age 49 years of age, a veteran um, of the Cape Frontier. He had his, his family in there. Um, so he had him and he had a guy called Hamilton Hope, a younger man. Uh, and then Austin came back in 78. So he, he was really... Um, being hindered, he wanted to make the calls, and even when they're bringing people forward to, um, you know, that needed to be um, tried, and and some of them, you know, were convicted. It's, Morosi always wanted to be felt like, well, no, it's me making the decision. So there was this tussle, 
you know, it didn't sit right with him traditionally. He's 84 years of age and he's seen a lot in his life and the colonial government's just clawing power from you know, trying to make him just a figurehead. Um, so that that was always looming in the back of his mind. Then one, one point that really sort of um, triggered it off was one of his sons, um, a chap by the name of Lahana or Dodo, he was more commonly known about and written about, um, was arrested along with six others um, allegedly for, for cattle theft. And they were in Austin's lockup. And then on the 31st of December, 1878, they were sprung from the lockup. You know, they escaped. And, you know, it embarrassed Austin, but it was his own fault. He might as well have left the, the door of the prison open with an exit sign. It was so easy for them to escape. Um, and so Dodo, he, he cleared off and, um, you know, they were it embarrassed the Cape government and they really needed to know where this guy was and they wanted him back. And they wanted Morosi to hand him back, but that wasn't going to happen because Dodo was basically heading for Robben Island. That's what was happening. Um, so Morosi didn't want that. Um, so Austin was, you know, pushing and shoving with Morosi over this matter, and Morosi was playing it very cleverly. And um, he obviously knew where he was. And this was going on to you know, like January. So up in Zululand, the Zulu war is about to kick off, right? So, in so there's the a lot week, going on. Yeah, in the week preceding is Andwana, that the Cape government's saying, well, what's going to happen? Are we going to get him back? And is Morosi implicated? And they were trying to get evidence to say that Morosi was implicated in the breakout. There's a lot of hearsay. Depending on the count, it's hard to say, but you definitely, um, he was a part of harbouring him. Um, then, of course, you had Sekakuni up in the Transvaal was still undefeated, that aborted campaign. So the king of the Bapedi people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that still needed to be resolved and that was hanging. That I suppose Morosi was a little bit confident that, hang on, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on here. And then, of course, the news of Izanwana, you know, it's 22nd of January, I think it, it hit Morosi within 24 hours. I think even before they knew about it in Cape Town, Morosi knew about it. So he's thinking, okay, this, this is looking promising. I might, might be able to hold off and, and resist as long as possible. But in that backwash of Izandwana, the imperial troops had already taken some of them out of the, um, the Cape frontier already and sent them up to Natal. So there's a, there's a greater vacuum. You know, even down in the Cape, the Cape volunteers were mobilised to guard the Cape Castle while the fourth foot was sent off, um, et cetera. And then on the frontier itself, the remaining Imperial troops are pretty much pulled out. I think there's only a couple of companies left there. But they mobilised the, um, the CMR, the Cape volunteers, and this new organisation, the Cape, Cape uh, Mounted Yeomanry, to the so frontier. So just to clarify, uh, the CMR is Cape Mounted Rifles. Yeah, Cape Mounted Rifles and the Cape Mounted Yeomanry, which was a new force. So they um, they send up to Parmeet Fontaine on the on the tally, which is right on Morosi's doorstep. Uh, it's basically where the Cape meets Basuto land. They send up two troops of the Cape Mounted Yeomanry. And so Morosi is saying, hang on, 
troops are on my doorstep, exactly what happened in Zululand. You, you right. know, so he is feeling that they're coming to get me and they're going to take us on and this is probably what they're going to do to um, take us out. So, you, you know, it, it, he's boxed into a corner. Do I hand over my son and probably um, jail myself? if the government manages to fabricate or actually find evidence that he's implicated in the breakout. Then, so about 10th of February, Colonel Griffith, um, who was the, the Cape's um, government agent in Basutoland, um, he starts to receive news that, yeah, Morosi is preparing to fight. And it looks like the Tembu down in that Palmeet Fontaine area may support um, Morosi. And Some the Tembu are Hossa-speaking people, right? So they wouldn't necessarily be considered allies of the Baputi, would they? Was this a, a surprise to the British? Um, no, no, it wasn't, because actually living within um, Morosi's territory, he actually had some Tembu living in there. It was a, He had about 8,000 people under him, and they were a bit of a mixed bag, actually. Um, refugees from all over the place, and um, what we're, you know, were living in there with him. So... It was just one of these dynamics that they thought they're going to sit on the fence and see what plays out, you know. And, and more importantly with this, Morosi believed that the Basutu would also rise up. under as in, uh, as in the rest of the nation under King Moshweshwe? Y- yeah, well, that's right. Under his son, let's see, there was then the, the, the paramount ruler. So um, he wrongly believed that. Um, and then finally we get on the 23rd of February, so this is a month after his Andwana, the troops have built up. The magistrate, Austin, flees from Morosi's territory. He had already got his family out. Austin comes under a lot of criticism for this, but when you look at the hard facts, you know, there is definitely something brewing and he um, he's only got a handful of men and what's he going to achieve by staying apart from what the, the government probably want is... Um, him to die facing the foe. Um, he comes up a lot of criticism for it, but the government was adamant that it's him fleeing that sparked it, and they're probably right. using it more as an excuse rather than their own, their own, um, you know, direct action of sending troops up to the border. So, anyway, moving on to so the actual period of the conflict um, was really from the fifth of March when the first shots ring out until the 20th of November of that year, the last ones. But interestingly enough, if you wanted to claim the medal, the South African War Medal with the clasp 1879, that they used the date the 25th of March, which was actually the date that the troops arrived at the mountain itself. Okay, and that, There's a, a common misconception with the Morosi campaign that it was just around this mountain. It, it wasn't. And so that the sphere of operations... Um, it, it, in Basuto land itself, let's just say from the Tally Drift uh, that with the border with the Cape that I mentioned, it's 32 miles out um, east over to the um, Morosi's Mountain itself. Morosi's Mountain had sat on the, the Orange River and the Quithing Rivers hard up against it. I'll talk later on about the description of the mountain. And then if you took that Orange River and you, you moved south, 
till you get to the Drakensberg mountain range and all those passes up there, that was essentially the sphere of operation in Basuto land itself. Um, and there's mainly bridle tracks up there. There's a lot of patrolling and um, um, fights up at, you know, throughout the whole campaign up there, you know, less, sometimes up to a couple of hours of engagement with um, with the Baputhi in trying to seize food stock, um, livestock, et cetera, and, um, and pacify the area. But in, in the, for the, we'll mention a little bit about the patrolling, but they were so numerous that it's just not worth going into because you can go down a, a um, rabbit hole with them. So then apart from Basuto land, of course, these passes that run along the Drakensbergs, they needed to be blocked. Okay, so the Cape Forces mobilised the Omanry and CMR to block all these passes, and it's basically 110 miles. Right, along the Drakensberg in the East Griqualand area. And they mobilised a lot of troops to, um, to block these passes and later patrol over the Drakensberg into that area from the Drakensberg up to the Orange and the Quipping rivers. Okay, so it was all this patrolling to stop the um, supplies getting through to Morosi when they're at the mountain itself. So it's actually a very large area of operations then. It's not just around this one mountain where him and his tribesmen had uh, hold themselves yeah. up. There was a lot going on. It's about 4,400 square miles, really. It's a lot of turf, and that's not including the lines of communication. So if you're at the mountain itself, where later on, you know, from March onwards, they, they had the place um, cordoned off and they were fighting up till November, to get somebody back to Aliwell North, um, where the closest base hospital was that they built, and also to get a telegram out, it's 94 miles. So, you know, it's hard going. If you're seriously wounded, they just didn't backload, backload you. You probably wouldn't make it. Um, you know, and then also to get a telegram out, the latest news, it, they had these express riders, and it's 94 miles there and back. That was a continual job for people. And then, of course, the extending the lines of communication back to King Williamstown at the Commandant General's office, it's 235 miles just to the tally. You know, so getting supplies up, I could do a whole talk just about the, the, the supply chain and the breakdown on it, but, you know, it was hard going and they subcontracted that out, which is a foolish move, and they, they really come unstuck with it. But so... Backpedalling a little bit, back to the Baputhi themselves and Chief Morosi. So we mentioned, you know, he uh, was a vassal of um, Letsi. Um, and he, he had roughly, depending on what you look at, I've seen figures of 5,000 up to 8,000, um, the population un, under his rule. And I would say that he possibly had about 1,000 um, combatants, able-bodied combatants, and not all of these were at the mountain, mind you. Um, when they mobilised, interestingly enough, the same with the Basuda, um, they were formed and, and called commandos, basically. Every now and then they could be classed as regiments, but they were basically commandos formed under a, um, a headman who were mainly Morosi's sons. And at 84 years of age, he had 70-odd um, wives, um, as many children and grandchildren. Um, the man himself was a raider of note. Um, 
the cattle raiding, you know, that was just a way of life then. Um, and, and, and he was a real raider of note, and that's how he came under the notice of, you know, Mosheshwe. And then eventually he came under him and um, and Mosheshwe, I gather, you know, he really, really liked him. He, he liked his tenacity. Um, and even, you know, later in life at 84, you know, he's the guy still fighting. Um, but as a young man, when um, Sharkers Amabuthu were um, in the 1820s, were... Um, you know, move, moving into, you know, what would now be called or probing into what would now be Lesotho. Um, he, he was a part of that fighting to to push them back. So, you know, he, he goes way, way back. Um, and then he, 1825, he's under um, Sheshwe. Then he fights the, the British at, um, with the Basuto at Dulucy's Neck or Dulcie's Neck in February 1850, which is not far from the Tally Drift. It's just a, a short ride. But there he encounters artillery, and it's used against him and his people with some effect, and he takes note of that. Um, then 1865, um, you know, with the um, Basutu, he's fighting against the Free State Boers, and, and then he's defeated under um, Commandant Pete Vessels. Now, at this point in time, he... Decides he's got he's got a mountain fastness at the tally itself actually, and there was one, another one smaller one just across the river. But he um, then moves back to what becomes known as Morosi's Mountain. This is really the subject of this talk, um, and he starts to construct that bit by bit, and you know he he does a really really good job. And the question was asked in 1879: How could this have happened? without us knowing, but the, the fact remains is that um, people like Austin had reported that it's just the Cape government hadn't sat up and listened. Um, so just to just to clarify then, Cam, essentially he's got these potentially around a 1,000 warriors. What sort of, I mean, how would they have been armed? How would they have been kitted out? Could you just give us a very brief overview of what we're looking at here? Were they similar to the Zulus? You know, how could people sort of look at where they sat militarily? Yeah, so they had traditional weapons, of sagais, battle axes. They did have firearms, um, muzzle loaders of older vintage, and depending on the prestige, bearing in mind the weapons were um, prolific at the time, you know, and there was a lot of people from Basuto land going, working up in Kimberley, and they're coming back and buying a, a weapon on the way back. So I've even seen um, references to Winchesters being used. You know, which is you attribute mainly to the US, but there's a couple. They had the of repeating rifles that you kind of um, rechamber from underneath with a lever. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And interestingly enough, just while we're on on that, that's in my mind during the campaign itself. And I was asking myself the question: How are they resupplying themselves with ammunition? But they were manufacturing their ammunition and recycling it. So they were picking up spent rounds, melting them down. You know, this was going on at the mountain itself. Yeah, so it's, it's quite innovative. Um, yeah, so that so that's the um, the Baputi, and, and we'll 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 shed another layer off it as as we move along. Um, and then the Cape forces. So so with this campaign, the British had a lot going on. This Peace Preservation Act. 
the British were never really convinced of it. You know, the people in the know weren't, and they really wanted to have no part of it. And there was fear that, that this was going to um, provoke a war. But at this point in time, they just needed to apprehend Dota, you know, so it was more of a policing action, I suppose. But the Cape forces that were, in, were involved with this campaign was the Cape Mounted Rifles, which was a permanent force, and they were retitled the um, as the CMR in August 1878, preceding that they were the Frontier Armed Mounted Police, the FAMP. And then there was this, this new concept as a result of the um, reorganisation, restructuring of post um, Ninth Frontier War, which concluded in June 78. So they they decided, and this was the um, the government's new new concept of raising the Cape Mounted Yeomanry, three regiments. And the idea was that let's disband a lot of these small town volunteer units, 25 men here, 50 there, sometimes maybe up to 100. And let's, in the districts, draw them together and we'll have the first Yeomanry here, the second there and the third here. And we'll, that's what we'll use as, as a second line of defence. You know, the CMR should be mobilised first and then failing that, the Yeomanry. And the idea, I suppose, is, you know, let's bring in make it attractive, we're going to give the guys great uniforms, make it popular. Um, but, however, they don't get enough time to, to get this up and running. When they mobilise from Morosi's Mountain, they're basically in Mufti. Um, they don't get the 1,000 strong for every regiment they want. I think the third down barely even gets up to 300. Um, they don't get much of a chance, really, to, to train and get organised, and they're, they're just pushed into the field. Then you've got the volunteers, those regiments that remained um, there in place, and you've got the burghers under that, the Basuto police. That so just to, just to clarify quickly, Cam, the burghers would be uh, Afrikaans-speaking uh, men who were sort of drafted to fight. Would that be right? Uh, yeah, and, and, and English speakers, anybody in the district that wasn't right. a volunteer. So yeah, if you're down in Cathcart, every man jack that qualified could, could be mobilised and they did substitutes and all that. But that's traditionally how we do think of it. But, you know, there was a lot of English and, and Cape born people down there as well as those of Afrikaans descent. Um, but the concept is, you know, traditionally what we know, it's the same way you'd, you'd mobilise under a felt cornet, et cetera, and appoint a commandant, depending on how many men you had in that unit. Sometimes they just had a field captain. And the Basuto police, that it was a small force that was um, operating under, under, under Griffiths, basically. And then they raised a Basuto contingent, fluctuated up to about 1,500 people. And then you had Cape Levies as well, um, which could be mobilised, and they brought in a number of them from the Herschel district, which is basically just beyond the, the tally itself. So Cape um, Levies, would they have been um, uh, black recruits, essentially, who were brought in to sort of help with logistics yep. and things like that? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And they, they operated, you know, various um, degrees of efficiency. And a lot of these guys had even fought in the Ninth Frontier War, so they weren't devoid of experience. Um, and it was, you know, they need to be incentivized as well and as equipped as best they could. Um, yeah, and the whole logistics and equipping of these guys is pretty deplorable, actually, for everybody, for that matter. Um, it's one thing out of this campaign that was not done well. Um, and then 
commanding these people. So eventually this commandant, um, commander of the, uh, the Cape Colonial Forces, and a, a, he was known as the commandant of the Cape Colonial Forces. He, he was a British chap, um, Colonel Jarvis. Um, he's 58 years of age, this guy. He's based in King Williamstown. Um, he was in the 82nd Regiment. Um, he, is, he was a mutiny veteran. He, he was actually Canadian-born, um, interesting enough. And he, but he did, excuse me, did serve at one stage in the Riel Rebellion. Then he, um, he's posted as a special service officer to the Cape in May 1878. And he, he takes over there at King Williamstown. With him, as it's worth an interesting little tip point here, um, he has as his assistant adjutant general, and basically his principal staff officer, was Colonel um, William Mansell Cochrane, who's the father of Captain William F.D. Cochrane, 32nd foot, you know, from Zulu War fame. Right. Um, and here's the thing. He takes over his father's job on the 1st of September, 1879. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. What are they doing? Ne- nepotism, isn't it? <laughs> um, interesting little tidbit. Um, yeah. So, so who's going to command these guys in um, the pseudo land? So the obvious choice is, is um, Colonel Griffith, right? So in a nutshell, he's 49 years of age. He was born in Grahamstown. Since a young boy, he's been fighting in Frontier Wars. He was in the Seventh Frontier War, yeah, the War of the Axe in 46, 47. And everything onwards, he commanded levies. He fell into the civil service for a bit. Then he was the 2IC of the FAMP, you know, the Frontier Armed Man of Police. So he knows a lot of people. He knows the terrain. And he just finished commanding the Cape Forces down in the um, Ninth Frontier War. And he came under a little bit of criticism for that, um, whether it's justified or not. But at the time, he he fought the war that he way that it, it should be fought. And then he went back up after a short break um, to resume his service, his duty in um, the Sudoland as the government agent. So he commands firstly, then we get Brabant, um, Colonel Brabant, who's a, a former Imperial um, Cape Mounted Rifles officer, British chap. Well, a Cape politician, Ninth Frontier War veteran. We'll get into a bit later on. And then the final commander of the campaigns, a chap called um, Colonel Zach Bailey, who's the youngest of a lot of them. He's 38 years of age. Um, he'd served with the Imperial Army. He was a lieutenant in the Ninth Foot, which were the East Norfolk's, I believe. Um, retired in 1869 to the Cape, goes through the Frontier War, and he's at Umzantani in the December 1877, which is this all-colonial battle where they um, they defeat the, um, the Corsair Army. He's made a colonel in the Dukes, and then they bring him into the CMR as a commander of the CMR in January 1879. Um, so he sort of hits the ground running. All this is just about to kick off. But we'll get into him later on. Yeah. Um, and, and so... The Cape Forces themselves, they're armed with um, long and short Snyder rifles, no martinis. So the, um, the levies, some of them were armed with muzzle loaders, um, which they weren't that confident in. Um, some did receive Snyders when they were made available. They managed to get up to the mountain 
early on, um, at least for the first attack, two seven-pounders, uh, which belonged to the artillery troop of the CMR. And later they um, purchased from the um, Free State Government a 12-pounder Armstrong, which they bought up. And finally, a very, very small brass five-and-a-half-inch mortar was procured, and that was dated 1806. So they really, really, you know... Scraping the battle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Literally. Around that armoury, seeing what they could find. But anyway, so... Um, moving into the phases of the rebellion, we've already talked about Dota was arrested, Dota's escape, and this is really why the Cape government's up there, that this is embarrassing to them, or it could be used as a catalyst to um, bring Morosi to heel. You know, they, they felt that he was a bit of a firebrand, and, and even at times that they say that even, you know, Letsy found him very difficult to, to deal with at the time. But um, so they've got these, the yeomanry is mobilised and it, the second yeomanry arrives up there, a couple of troops to start off with, under a chap called um, Colonel Richard Southie. Now, Southie is actually a special service officer from the 10th foot. But oh, the Lincolns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's, interesting enough, though, but he's Cape Bourne. His father is um, a Cape politician, and I think his dad then would be maybe 70 years age himself, but he was still, I think, Colonel of the Honorary Colonel of the Cape Artillery um, and a pro-imperialist and, and was very much behind um, Sabato Freyer, actually. Um, so Southie, an imperial officer, he, he knows the country, you know, so... They made him the colonel of the um, the second yeomanry, and he is sent up there. And he, for the most part, he seems very, very switched on. And with the resources he's got, I think he, he does a pretty good job. When he gets up there, they've got um, two troops of the CMR, and the commander of the combined troops up there is a chap called um, Captain James Grant, who's late eighty fifth foot, also served in the twenty fifth foot. He's forty four years of age, British. Um, but he'd been in the Cape since 1856, and he was one of these guys that never really wanted to leave. I think they dragged him away very, very briefly to Salon, but he got himself back to the Cape. Um, and interestingly enough, he, he worked with um, Collie, General Collie. Oh, okay. Yeah, the first Anglo-Port War. Yep, that was killed up on Majuba. So he worked with Collie when Collie was a captain and they were on a mapping expedition together and he was essentially Collie's 2IC and they went in to map the Transkei, which was interesting. And then Grad resigns from the army and he becomes a, an inspector in the front of Amanda Police in 1865. So he's been with them for a while now. So you'd say he's a colonial, this guy. Um, seems pretty good operator as well. So they're up there at the tally. Then you've got Colonel Griffith starts to mobilise a force of Basutu up in the north of um, Basutu land, and it becomes. So they would be just for just for anyone who doesn't understand, they would be locally recruited uh, Sutu-speaking black levies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Originally, that they thought let's let's. Uh, mobilise the Basutu and Letsy can go and deal with Morosi, like prove his loyalty. And then there's a bit of backpedalling on that concept and they said, no, no, 
we need to do it together. It would be the wrong thing to do, to yeah. push Let's in like that, but let, let's go and do this together. So they mobilise um, across the country. I think it's up to about 1,500 um, men very, very quickly as well. And, of course, they're going to come down and they'll get the share in any loot, any cattle, um, anything else that they can drag out of um, Morosi's country as well. So they're incentivized. And so would the volunteers in the Omri for that matter. They were entitled to loot. And there's another part of the campaign on the Griqualand, East Griqualand side where there was a lot of impounded cattle and there was a lot of disputes later on about this, especially in the Yeomanry, who was entitled to what. Um, so the campaign kicks off proper, this build-up at the Tally Drift. Now, it's clear that Morosi is going to fight and it comes to the 5th of March. So we're moving on a little bit now. Um, and the, the troops down at the Tally Drift, they notice that there's a bit of movement across the border. All of a sudden, they could see a, a large mounted force moving down from the north. But Southie, who was ultimately in command, didn't know who this was. And so the day wasn't presenting too well. You know, there's like 1,500 mounted men coming down from the north. And plus, there's a Puthi starting to cross the Tally. What's going on? So he, he sends um, patrol heading north to find out what's going on. At the same time, there's shots starting to be exchanged now. There was a store down at the, um, the Tally Drift pretty close to where the crossing is now, the border crossing. Um, so when you, you cross the border at the Tally, it's, you're sort of walking back in time as well. You get to see where this, the area where this fight, first fight happened, literally as you're crossing the border. Um, so the Baputhi start to encroach on this Jones's store and there's a stone wall around it and there's a bit of skirmishing going on, but it's, you know, there's no casualties. It's loose shots being fired off everywhere and it seems a bit half-hearted, to tell you the truth. And the Baputhi probably realise, you know, is this going to be Letsy coming to help us or is this from the north? Or is this mounted force going to be fine? So at this point, nobody knew who these extra 1,500 guys were. Both sides are looking, thinking, who the hell's that? Yeah, what, what's going to go? Which way is this going to play? And um, so pretty, pretty soon they realised in the day that this is the 1,500 men that are under um, Chief Leratoli, you know, who later kicks off and is, is leads in the gun war. And, and these guys have got a brilliant reputation already, you know, as a as a stern fighter in, in the war against the Free State, you know, in Division 65, I mean, he really made a name for himself there. So he arrives on the scene. And the fighting at the Tally Drift, it, it, it's a bit of a bit of a nonsense and a non-event, really. Um, some of the reports are really unclear. I mean, Grant likes to sort of write up that he was really in command, but he wasn't. South, he was doing his thing. So, if anything, I think the lessons learned for the Cape out of it was all very disorganised. They realised that they they needed to be much better organised when they they crossed the Dally Tally or when they cross it, because at that particular time, Southie's orders were: you are not to cross, don't be baited into, and and on that day, it should be added that Southie realised that had he crossed the Paputhi and the high ground on the other side were in defensive positions and 
he would have suffered a lot of casualties. So he he wasn't baited. He he stood back and followed his orders. Um, but now they've got these fifteen hundred um, Basutu with a brigand, you know. So the forces are, have now now doubled. But that's the rebellion starting proper. You know, shots are being fired, and so they they end up going in, and they're going to head towards Morosi's Mountain as they're move, moving inland, and they get the 23rd of March. There's a lot of patrolling going on before they decide to plunge and, and head on straight to the mountain. But they get to a, um, a location um, at what they call as Metelli's Stronghold, and this is this place that they're saying we've really, really got to identify where it, where it is. Because when I was there recently, no one really knew anything about this place, but they knew of the name more as Muldoon's Cave. And so, so what happens there is that Southie's got about 400 men with him and they come across a defensive um, cave. So in these caves, that they're heavily walled up. They've basically got two walls with rammed earth in between and they're loopholed. And these, these fortifications are all over the country. And just while we're on that now, there was a lot of patrolling right through the whole campaign, dislodged, isolated Baputhi that had grain stores there, they had cattle there, and they wanted to move the population out. That was the government's objective, go out and just denude this place, pacify it. But they're after these caves all the time, and some of them they even went forward at several times. But at this particular one, there were set 60 Baputhi in there, and Southie launched his assault, and they come under quite heavy fire, and it falters. And they they decided they're going to they've got no artillery at this stage. They make they regroup, and they work out a way to attack it. And then the, the second yeomanry and the um, the CMR push in, and um, it's this Sergeant Muldoon, um, who's the, the place is named after. And he's a second yeomanry man from B Troop, which was from Tarkestad. And it, it, this chap was 26 Irish born. He was a carpenter of Tarkestad. And as they were moving in and taking the, the caves and beyond it, there was a series of um, fortification and boulders. And he stood up on what was described as a rock. And one of the officers said, Watch out, there's somebody shooting out of there. One of the levy leaders, I think it was a chap called Tainton, had, had mentioned to him. He said, watch out from that. And he said, no, I'll be right. And there was a um, Lieutenant Joe Brady who was close to him as well. And I think Brady goes on and he's, I think he was the chap that was captured up in um, at the start of the Boer War, up in, um, when the first shots were fired, when he was in the Protectorate Regiment. So, no, sorry, that was Nesbitt Brady's in in the defence of Mafeking. So he goes on for a while, that Brady. But Brady's with him and he yells out to him as well, like, what are you doing? And they said that this Muldoon was very, very brave, you could argue a little bit foolish and wasn't listening, and stuck his head over and shot and um, and, and, he, and is killed, you know, falls down and they had to get in and clear this cave. Um, so the, the location became known as Muldoon's Cave. But every now and then you'll read grave as well, which suggests that the guy's buried there. I've never been able to find exactly where he is buried. I'd like to know as well if anybody does know. Um, 
And so there they they lose him. The second year, we have two more wounded. The Herschel native levies, they have three wounded. Now, the Baputhi go down fighting. There's 43 of them killed, including several of Morosi's sons and grandsons. Oh, wow. So that's the first fight, and they stay there for um, overnight, and then they push on for the mountain. And they arrive at the mountain on the 25th of March, and Captain Grant talks about this, that when they first, and even today when you're driving there and you're driving around along the road, all of a sudden you see it. There it is. And it's like, wow, it's pretty impressive when yeah. you're looking. And um, so Griffith stopped there, and this is like almost a forlorn hope statement, this, you know, almost Napoleonic. You know, he says, you know, well there now, who will storm the place and earn the Victoria Cross? You know, and and Grant hung on those words, and we'll get to that later on. And so that when they're looking at it, it's 440 yards in height, basically, from the from the river. And um, I'll send you through the photographs that, then and now so you can you can post it. But I always for, for people that are listening want to visualize it. It's almost a bit like Edinburgh Castle or Lion's Head. You wow, know, so it's very it, steep sides. Yeah, it, it is. So you've got the orange on one side, okay, on the western side. You've got the quithing on the northern side. And, and really, I mean, you're not going to assault that. And then on the eastern side, um, they didn't realise it at the time, but there, there was a way to get up there. It's it's not as bad as the, the west and the northern sides, but you look and you think, no, you're not going to get up there in a hurry. And then the only real approach, and this is why I always think of the Edinburgh Castle, you know, when you're, you're walking up there, you've got this almost cleared area. And at the mountain, there is that. There's this natural pass. And that was the way that Morosi, out of wartime, moved up there and he could have cattle there. And um, and that was on the, on the southern side of it. And that was then the only the only way practical that they thought they, thought they could get up there. Yeah. But what he'd been just, doing... Just, just quickly to jump in, Cam, and for anyone who doesn't know, this was kind of the classic Basutu way of war, wasn't it? You know, Mishwe famously had Tava Busiu where, you know, he would take all his people onto these steep mountainsides, take all the cattle and kind of say to the enemy, right, come and get us if you can. Is that is that essentially what Morosi was doing? Yeah, exactly. So for 10 years, he'd been building this place up. Now, at the time, the colonial troops, when they looked at it, believed that they were seeing up to nine tiers of defences. So bearing that in mind, especially when we get into the first attack, that's quite demoralising to think that, hang on, even if we get through the first one, we've got two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine to go through. But when they took the place and they looked at it proper, they could see there was actually just one really, really strong tier, but behind it, an, a number of access points that were walled up and defended, Sangers, but it wasn't nine solid ones. There were ways to wind your way in. Because obviously when they're defending this, they needed to get more, more men down there as well. Yeah. So that's what they were looking at. And it was quite daunting at the time. So Griffith sends away and says, you need to send me some guns up here, you know, before we, we, we do anything. And and he's discussing with Southie and um, Colonel Minto with the third yeomanry, you know, and how they're going to take this and, and Grant, of course. Um, so when 
this first wall, just we already talked about what how they used the two stone walls, rammed earth and loophole. So the same thing applied at Morosi's Mountain, this first wall. So if you were to visualise a natural stone wall, typical of southern Africa, you know, the, the geology, the way that it's in these tiers, these steps. So he used that natural stone wall and he built up on top of it. So, you know, you're looking 9 to 12 yards in height, sometimes more, a little bit less facing it. So without scaling overs, you're just not going to get up that. And I suppose almost, almost like what the Zulus faced uh, parts of the Rourke Drift uh, uh, in places. Those sort of, you know, they had to, there was the natural rock face okay. and then the media bags on top. So it was kind of a similar sort of problem. Yeah, 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 exactly. It makes it really difficult. And, um, you know, if you're under fire, it's very hard to negotiate. So anyway, so that's what they're faced with. So Griffith brings up... Um, they had to expedite this really quickly and, and get two um, seven-pounders up um, belonged to the artillery troop were down in um, East Quickland. I think they were at Ibiza from memory. And um, they were brought up under a um, Lieutenant Best who's a bit of a dynamo and you could probably do a whole story on him alone. But but he comes up and he's commanding these, these two guns and he brings up a a really, really good group of operators, two really good detachments of men. And um, so they arrive and pretty, you know, almost straight away, Griffiths, like, right, well, we're going to take this place. Straight in. Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, best, um, you know, he's under a bit of pressure there. Um, So in the first assault itself, Griffiths determined that we'll do a frontal assault and we'll put a storming party in it and it would be composed of the CMR, the bulk of the two troops, um, the bulk of the third yeomanry, and the whole group would be under the command of Colonel Minto. Now, Minto, um, I think he was a storeman and an auctioneer from, from memory, um, and he did reasonably well in the ninth frontier. He seemed a good organiser. And he commanded the Albany, Albany Mounted Volunteers, of which Cecil Darcy VC served under at one stage. And another, another you know, more notables as well under him. And the bulk of his third yeomanry were the men that had served under him. There are now a lot of them were commissioned, a lot of the, the sergeants were now commissioned. And so he was going to be in command. And in total, there's going to be 160 in this um, this storming party. And as a part of the reserve, um, you had um, Colonel Southie that we mentioned before and, he, and his second yeomanry. Um, so the, uh, the way that they were going to position themselves and assemble for this group, that they, they all assembled in, in their camps and then there was to be a silent move up to a camp so up to a cave that's very, very close to that first wall. And so to visualise it, if you were to picture, you know, that stone wall, even thinking of visualising Edinburgh Castle and you get that area where they hold the tattoo, there's an area not as big as that in front of it, but a size of maybe two tennis courts in front. And they had to move up, slink across that, and into this cave, that's what they wanted to do. And the cave was pretty much under the first wall. 
And the idea was that, that as soon as, you know, the, the signal was sent, that they would dash out quickly, do a, a right turn, face the wall and assault. And um, it was all going to be great. You know, that's what their, 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 their vision was. Um, there's no evidence of how they thought that they were going to get up that 12-foot wall without any ladders. Um, but I believe that they felt that looking at it, um, that there were areas where you could use the footholds and climb up it and, oh. and jump in. And the, also there was... When someone's shooting at you and throwing spears at your head. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, well, they had this false belief that the artillery was going to do a bit of damage to this, but, um, you know, the storming party wouldn't have seen that it, it basically did no damage at all. But, but in saying that, so, so Best puts 125 shells into it and it really does nothing because even with a collapsed wall, it's still defensible. You know, yeah. the truth, you could lay behind it and they were building it up, um, but it, it was thicker than what they thought. So it, it really just you know, in places, knocked a few stones off. So at about 8 o'clock in the morning, um, the storming party is ready to go. But during the course of the night, Grant's expecting 160 people in this cave, but only 50 make it. And he turns around to a Captain Smith of the Omen and says, where's, where's Colonel Minto? Where's the commander of this storming party? And no one knew. And just prior to Grant saying, okay, well, whether they're here or not, we're going to do this. Our orders are to assault it and we're going to assault this mountain. And he's just about to lead them out. He turns to Smith and um, says, well, what are you going to do? And Grant says, well, I think you better go find uh, Minto. And he goes, no, I'm going to stick with you. Um, so Grant and the men, they double out, come under fire immediately. They turn right and, and assault towards, you know, through this open area, this size of two tennis courts up to a you know, massive stone wall, basically, um, coming under fire. And Captain Sermon, who, who's commanding one of the troops, he's shot almost immediately and he goes down. Grant wasn't aware of this. And they were great, great personal friends as well. So Sermon goes down and this Sergeant Edwards, is shot, um, a troop of, sorry, a private Papsky goes down and a number of troopers in the yeomanry are also killed. So pretty soon they're under effective fire. They get up to this wall, they can take some cover and very soon they realise they're not getting up this thing. But they look around and where's the third yeomanry? Nowhere to be seen. Where's Colonel Minto? Nowhere to be seen. There was a, a young lad he was a former gunner in the Royal Field Artillery, the Royal Horse Artillery, chap by name of Lieutenant Reed, who was serving in the Third Yeomanry. He manages to get some guys together and they try and cross what is now fire-swept ground and, and he's shot down almost immediately and dies. Um, so it's a pretty bleak situation. Um, I could, you know, talk for a long time about this, but um, essentially the attack is not going to be pushed home. They, they try to um, get up into some areas where they, they, they can get onto a ledge, um, you know, by, by putting, you know, a, sort of holding a man up and we, with hands just pushing them up, you know, sort of like, you know, standing on them, uh, on their shoulders even, trying to get up and fire into loopholes. There's a lot of this going on. 
So they're um, trying to push men up and got people on their shoulders. And there's a lot of casualties, you know, people are dropping. Um, and then we get to this stage where um, Private Brown, he notices, he, he apparently he couldn't bear the sound of it anymore. He says, I'm going to do something about this. Sergeant Edwards, um, who he knew, known for many, like 10 years, you know, that soldier together, he's laying out there shot um, and was crying for water and Private Papsky was as well. So this is when he very coolly puts his rifle down, he goes out there unarmed, he gets um, some water off a yeomanry. Um, as a Brown had nothing left himself. And he just coolly, calmly walks out to where they were and he's actually giving Edwards water and he shot himself once. And then he um, he takes some cover and then he's shot again. Um, and that's Brown gone down. But everybody that witnessed this couldn't believe what they were looking at. And they said for years after it was talked about that nobody that ever saw it would forget how he just coolly walked out without a weapon. Yeah. And um, and then they 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 crawl and get into a bit of cover, and we'll get onto him more detail about how he gets the VC. Um, but Brown, they managed to drag a, a medical officer gets him later on. One of the surgeons, I'm not sure which one it was, manages to um, drag him out. Um, but poor old Edwards and um, Private Papsky, there they were shot at eight o'clock in the morning, and they only brought them in at eight o'clock at night. And they, they were shot, I think, three times each. You know, they were shot again and again. Um, so that, that goes on. But then, you know, you've got Grant uh, up at the wall. Southie joins him at the wall as well. This is, I should have mentioned this earlier on. Southie thought, well, hang this. I haven't been called forward, but I'm not going to sit there and let this happen. So Southie gets as many of his second yeoman as possible and they get up to the wall. And then Colonel Griffith makes his way up also and he's talking with Grant and they think, well, well, how are we going to do this? We've got to take this place. Then I think it was Griffith come up with the idea and he said, could we take a seven-pounder shell and use it like a grenade? So they send a message back to Lieutenant Best who thought that in theory, yes, it could be done. And Griffith says, okay, well, can we get some volunteers from the artillery troop? So there's a handful of guys, half a dozen guys from the um, the gun line decide that, no, we'll give this a crack. And Sergeant um, Robert Scott was overhearing this conversation down there, you know, at the gun line. And he said, well, I'll do it. And he gets it, you know, says, who wants to come with me? And he, they have a whole cluster of these rounds. And under fire, they make their way up to the wall. And when, when they're there, they decided that, okay, we'll, we'll try this out. Um, and essentially they throw the first one and it fails and the second one blows up in the hand. But we'll get onto it a bit later uh, about the nitty-gritty of it and the other individuals there. So that takes place and it fails. Then they realise, okay, we've got to get off this mountain. They decide they'll do a night withdrawal. They'll do the best they can for the wounded. And they get everybody off. There was... They're even bringing the dead down, but they um, there was one man, I think it was a chap by the name of Breen, that they decided, no, they're going to have to leave him because they'd end up with more people killed in trying to recover his body. So they lose five killed, 17 wounded. And there's so it's only... a bit of a disastrous start to the battle then. 
Yeah, very much so. And the the, the Baputhia negligible um, casualties. Even Morosi's down there firing in the in the the front defensive wall personally himself. You know, every everybody's a part of it. Um, and you know, it's obviously Griffiths is very dejected. Um, there's a lot of angst about where was Minto. And the first time I ever read this, I thought mm, I took it as on lip service, but it was even mentioned in Parliament. Later on in the campaign, they even want the government wants Griffiths to basically write a complaint or a report, like he he loads the gun and fires it. And he said, no, you make your accusation and then I'll come and testify, but I'm not going to bring him down. Um, and even recently I was, I was reading a Trooper Browning, one of his own men that was there and close by as a um, regimental bugle, I said he was laying safely behind a rock all the wow. way. Yeah, not, not good. And you, know, you read some of the CMR reports and they really go to town on him and, yeah. and the others that didn't come forward as well. Um, but you know, there's a lot of lot of bravery that day. Um, there's one chap that I, I was just reading in my notes the other day, and I thought I'll, I'll mention him now just to give an idea of the ilk, the type of men that were serving in the CMR at the time. There's a chap called Herbert Oakley, and he's in this detachment that's with Scott of the artillery troop that volunteered to go forward. So this Oakley is um, Englishman, 30 years of age. His father was the governor of the um, Somerset County Jail. But he was a, um, he's been described as a historian, a naturalist, and also he's been um, described as, as a curator. And just before the attack, he gets orders from Sir Bartle Freer that he is to be discharged to go and take up a job at the South African Museum in Cape Town as a curator. Wow. And the, the detail of the instructions coming out of the CMR is, okay, he needs to pay off his mess bills. Um, they had an equipment fund that they drew money from as well, so he had to pay off any debt that he had there, hand in his equipment, and then he could go. But they'd have to get him out, of course. But he, he decides, no, I'm going to hang, hang back for this fight. And he's actually mentioned in dispatches for being as part of Scott's party that goes forward. Um, and then he, he makes his way off the mountain, and a couple of weeks later he's probably walking up through the company gardens to start his job. And the contrast yeah. between the two, you know, yeah. it's quite amazing. Right. There, there, was, there were units full of interesting characters for sure. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I always I like this Oakley chap and I've, I've written him into the book. It's, it's, a, it's a good story. But so that, that's a failure. They're moving on a bit. Um, so we get up to the 29th of May. There's been a bit of patrolling in, in the area. Um, now, the Baputhi are, are getting food up there. They even get cattle up there, incredibly, because to cordon this off, the troops that Griffith has got isn't enough. You know, to practically cordon off the mountain isn't impossible. You'd need thousands of troops to do it. And then he's got to patrol. He's got to protect his lines of communication because you've got the commissariat coming in, which are subcontractors. You know, they've just subcontracted out to, like, Hudson and Co. of King Williamstown to bring up beef, but these contractors are not going to send in their wagons, their own assets, mm. without them being protected. And that caused problems. So all that's going on, but then you get to the 29th of May and 
down at the junction of the um, the Quithing and the, the Orange River, and if you look over the back of Morosi's Mountain, you're looking right down onto this thing. You know, it's like looking out of the um, out of the twenty floors, twentieth floor of a of a building down onto the road below. You can clearly see what's going on there, and they could see that Griffith had ordered a um, a troop of the Third Yeomanry to go down and set up a picket post as a part of this cordon. Yeah. Um, so the chap that goes down there is given the orders uh, is Captain Lorenzo Chiapini, a B troop of the Third CMR. He's got 48 men with him, and he goes down. And the very first day, they started to started to build a defensive wall, and they take some tents down. It's getting quite cold. And that first night, the Baputhi descend off the mountain. Now the reports say there were hundreds of them, but there were never any more than a hundred men, you know, fighting men on the mountain at any one time. You know, you see all sorts of fiction about 500 people up to 1500 it's just to dull the thud of the defeats really but you know yeah. that that's what we had up there so the Baputhi descend off the mountain silently a picket notices in the brush that there's movement and he, he fires off a shot yells out you know they're coming and by the time he gets back um get, gets back to the actual where the tents are the Paputhi are all over them and they, they come in and they are segai and, and battle axe these guys while they're still in their tents. And, you know, within minutes, there's five killed and 19 wounded. You know, the 48, four, um, four later die, um, including a, an American, a chap by the name of Bird Hastings. So Great name. Digging, yeah, digging into his story a little bit, trying to find out more about him, but it's interesting. Um, it, He's been named in a poem as being in America. There's a poem cool written about it. And it become known as the Junction Affair. And essentially, that they're, they're under attack all night. They manage to um, inflict casualties on the Bahuthi, but the Bahuthi have, have done what they came to do, you know, um, deliver a blow and to, to show that the, the Cape Colonial government, that, hang on, we can deliver a punch as well. And right. they, they managed to reascend back up to the mountain. And there's obviously a, a court of inquiry. There's a lot of arguing about why did you take patrol tents? You were never ordered to take patrol tents. And, um, you know, Colonel Minto's wrapped in, roped into this one because he was the one that was given the orders to send Chiapini across. Um, but anyway, it, I mean, it happened. And it's a, like a mini Natombe Sprite, really, you know, up in... Well, that's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. It sounds a lot like Natombe Drift, which was only a couple of months earlier up in, uh, well, what's now Boomalanga, isn't it, on the border with Zululand? Yep, yep, very much so. It's sort of when you, the more you read into it, it's very, very close to it. So anyway, so that that's happened, but they decide to bring up the first yeomanry, which had been patrolling on the, the East Crickland side of the Drakensbergs, and that's under Colonel Brabant. And we mentioned earlier that Brabant was British. Um, in his 40s, he was an Imperial CMR man, a lot of frontier experience. When they disbanded the Imperial CMR, um, he was transferred um, to, on the supernumerary list to a um, an Imperial Infantry Regiment. They wanted to post him to Hong Kong, and he, so he left the army. He entered politics. 
he um, he raised the frontier-mounted rifles, not light horse, frontier-mounted rifles, in the out of East London district in the Ninth Frontier War. And then when they formed the first yeomanry, he was appointed colonel of that, and he obviously had a lot of his East Londoners in it. Um, so Brabant arrives at the mountain, and he goes out, does a lot of patrolling, and then eventually Brabant takes over, and Griffith goes back and assumes his responsibilities um, with his post as a government government agent. Um, so the first CMR there, and, and pretty much straight away, um, Brabant decides that he's going to have a crack at the mountain. Now I won't get into the first map, the second attack as much as the first, um, but essentially it, it's the same dynamics. Artillery bombardment will have the stormers. A few personalities are changed out. Um, but, but it's, an, it's another mess. It results in 12 killed, 31 wounded, three of them later die wounds. So there's quite substantial casualties. Um, Morosi is once more in the, in the front line fighting. There's but four, four Bethuti killed, um, four wounded in, in this attack. And in, like the first attack, um, there's a lot of wounded laying out exposed in that same ground that was fire swept where Brown had gone out um, and he performed the deeds. It late, later got him the VC. But but here's Surgeon Hartley. He goes out to um, bring in a wounded man and there's a number of others that are with him also doing the same thing, and very similar to what, what Brown did. But we'll get a little bit into that more later on when we cover the VCs in a bit more detail. Um, but, but bags and bags of... Um, bravery and gallantry there. there. There was actually a New Zealander in the CMR, chap by the name of James Handyside. Um, and he at one stage managed to get up on the wall, you know, and um, it was a determined effort with him and another chap called Langrish, but um, he's wounded and a chap by the name of Captain Dalgetty, who was then an adjutant of of Brabant's first yeomanry and later commanded the CMR, actually goes right into the Boer War and was a defender of um, Vepina. Um, so Dalgetty's um, he's mentioned for bravery as well in that same incident in bringing Handyside down that's wounded. But, yep, another failed attempt and doesn't bode well for the Cape government because, you know, we're, we're in June now. That was on the, um, the 5th of June. Yeah, and what was supposed to be a pretty swift let's go in and arrest these people is in any a complete mess. Um, so Brabant's command, in in summary, is let down with the commissariat. I've, I've mentioned before that you know they subcontracted. He had no direct control over the commissariat in his own sphere of operations. He is the commander of the troops in Basutu land. And he's got no control of him. There's all sorts of stories about the storekeepers are drunkards. They're selling off stores. The food's not getting in. And then the contractors are saying, well, we'll bring it in, but I'm not going to come in without protection. So we have to do something. And then also the medical system was a disaster. Um, I should have mentioned this earlier, actually, that those first casualties off the mountain um, you know, Scott VC, when he had his arm shattered than everybody else, 
they basically made a little sod wall hospital that you could hardly stand in with ground sheets over the top as protection. And in the foul weather, it was deplorable. And in some of the descriptions of these places, amazing how people managed to survive. Um, Brown stayed there for months recovering under yeah. these conditions. But at that and stage... They, should, sorry to interrupt. Maybe we should point out to people listening in the UK or in Europe that sort of, you know, May, June, July, this is actually the middle of winter in Southern Africa. This, you know, it's the reverse of the UK, for example. Yeah, it's it's pretty grim, and and later on, Surgeon Hartley um, he builds um, a hospital a bit further away down where they, um, which is now Fort Hartley. You look on the map; it's it's named under him. Um, and then you've got to get everybody back to Aliwal North, and and then further, you know, back home. So it's if you're a casualty at the mountain, it's it's pretty grim. Um, so all these patrolling and cave actions are going on. And Brabant was quite aggressive with them. You know, he had some some minor successes, but however, the Morosi is still up the mountain. Um, so then we, ro rolling on, there we get to September and there's what, you know, is the visit period. Okay, this is now September. <laughs> we haven't cracked this thing. And, and he's written no end of reports and, you know, he said the only way that we are going to crack this is with permanent troops, regulars. He felt that that was after he, that's how they were going to do it. Yeah. You know, because they've got the experience as the third yeomanry. And at that stage, they're deciding, you know, okay, we're going to send the yeomanry home and some of the volunteers, and they're recycling everybody. There's new contingents coming up now as well to take over because of the volunteers and the yeomanry, they're away from their family. They're away from their employment. They're away from their farms. It's, you know, plays on their mind. There are a lot of desertions at this stage. Um, some men deserted and came straight back and they said, yeah, we just wanted to attend to matters. And then there was a question of how do we deal with deserters? You know, they need to have some kind of standard approach in punishing deserters. Um, someone made the you know, decision, oh, we'll just, will discharge them, and then I think it was Colonel Jarvis said, no, no, you're, you're going to reward them then. You know, you're letting them off the hook. They need to go back and fight and do their duty. So in this visit period, there's a Major Nixon and two senior NCOs of the Royal Engineers are sent up to the mountain. They're from Cape Town. And they arrive, and Jarvis comes up himself. First, first and only time he came to the mountain, mind you, which I always thought was unusual. He's remotely, you know, operating. He needs to really see it to understand what, what's going on. He needs to understand what's failing in the supply chain and the evacuation yeah. of the casualties. Anyway, so he arrives and then Sprig, you know, he's the Prime Minister, he arrives as well. Um, now, the engineers say there's nothing we can do here. We can't sap this without huge expense and massive risk. What would it achieve? And they were impressed with what he did, what they were looking at. You know, he had out-engineered them. Yeah, and so Morosi was a pretty, pretty switched-on guy. Maybe we'll talk more about that at the end, but they were impressed by what he'd done. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, Nixon just turns around and he's like, there less than 24 hours. Nothing I can do here. I think the, the two NCOs stayed for a couple of days. Maybe they were helping... Um, one of the major picket posts that faced them, what they call the saddle picket, 
um, which is basically the front line of the colonial front line. They probably helped work on their defences there. Um, Sprig went up and had a, had a parlay with, with Morosi and with Morosi's delegates. And, you know, it come to nothing. Morosi had said, you brought your people in here to fight me. Well, we're here to fight. You guys go away, then maybe we can have some peace. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was his approach. And um, so, um, yeah, yeah, pretty disappointing. Um, but they do realise then that what Brabant was saying was right. Okay, we, we need to do this a, a different way and we need to get as many regulars up here as possible. And that, that's basically bringing up, I'm not talking imperial regulars, they didn't want to have a bar of it, but we'll bring up the remainder of the um, the owner. They also saw how porous the cordon was. And in and around these visits, to give one example, the Raputhi had some um, people bringing in cattle and some food stock and some reinforcements, but they had themselves dressed up as like the Herschel native contingent where they, they wore a um, blanket, a, a, a coloured headband, and they approached from the back. They just very calmly walked up and the picket thought that this is the, the native levies. And they just charged straight, straight through them, completely um, deceived them. And this happened all the time. It wasn't an isolated case. You know, there was a couple of fatalities up there at one stage with a couple of CMR men um, well, were killed in their bed. One of them was a Franco-Prussian war veteran, a young lad, but he'd first soldiered at like the age of 16 in the Franco-Prussian war, and he, he was a seger like about 17 times, you know, in his bed. They just charged straight through them, you know, came out of the night. Right. Uh, makes you wondering, you know, the, what the pickets were doing. Um, but anyway, so Bailey, um, Colonel Bailey, who came up with this visiting party, Mentioned earlier on, Bailey had fought in the Ninth Frontier War, ex-Imperial office officer. Um, now he'd retired out there and he'd, he'd fought at Umzantani and he was given command of the CMR in January when they were going to split it up into two wings, but they thought, okay, we'll, we'll do the left and right wing later. Let's get this campaign over first. So they send Bailey up um, the 28th of October, I think he... He first emerged up there, and Brabant was a wreck. He was exhausted, you know, suffering from insomnia, and that the weather had really played a part on him. And then, of course, this guy, you know, he's pretty dejected himself. He's trying to stop desertions, keep it all, all the, you know, glued together. Um, so he hangs around for a little bit, hands over. He's there with like about 15 of his own yeomanry that stay behind to assist in the handover, including um, that Captain Delgetti I mentioned before, who was his adjutant. Um, so with the CMR, there's about 443 of them in total um, that are mobilised, and Bailey ends up with about 1,000 men at his disposal, you know, not just at the mountain, but right across the, the lines of communication. There's more men mobilised from Herschel, other, other levies are raised as well. Um, now, he's the man that cracks it, but it must be said, he get, he, yes, he gets the glory, he picks up a CMG, he's the guy that breaks the mountain, but there are a lot of lessons learnt. 
the one thing that came out of the second assault is that they found out that on the eastern side there was a spring and they realised that there was a potential access point onto that mountain. And there was a lot of investigating done. Um, they're out with telescopes and that having a look at this area. And so when Bailey drew his plan together, he was going to exploit this and he was not going to go for a frontal assault. Okay, so he, he decided that he would exploit that, um, that eastern side um, and there was a CMR um, captain that just came up with it with the new guys that came up, chaplain over Captain Bourne. And the area or the, the access point became known as Bourne's Crack. So the idea was that there would be a three-day bombardment, but this time they brought up this little um, three-and-a-half-inch mortar. Um, they brought that up, and that had about 500 rounds at its disposal. So in the preceding days, that, the, um, that, that mortar, which had a, was able to lob over the wall, rounds in they they use that with, with good effect and that was a pretty much a um, a part of the one of the deal breakers here that you know that pulled this off with the colonial government but they fired 367 of those those mortar rounds in there predominantly into those, those front front defenses and they fired it from the saddle which is only a few hundred meters away so they're lobbing it at quite high angle which is you know the purpose of the mortar They've got a 12-pounder in action and the two seven-pounders, and it's just sort of relentless. And, uh, you know, you've got Best and his men, you know, just firing continuously. There was a sergeant, Major Baker, they said he, he operated for 48 hours straight without any sleep. Um, so at, at, at 3.15 in the morning, they fire a single rocket up, and that's when Bailey agrees that, okay, now's the time to do it. Everybody's in place, and he fires a rocket up, and Bourne um, gives the order for his his group to move forward. And those that are facing the the front, they're actually you know they're where the traditional attacks have been. The first two assaults have actually told they are not to do anything until they get word that there is someone, and what the words they use has affected a landing on the mountain that they're in. They were not to assault. And they put up these scaling ladders, and the scaling ladders had been made back at Aliwal North, and they were brought forward specifically for the job. But it should be said that it's often been written that the scaling ladders were the difference between the other attacks. But in the second attack, they actually did have a few scaling ladders, but they, they didn't use them effectively, so they did actually have them there. But, but one of the lessons learned is that, you know, they... They needed to use more of these, and they purposely built them. Um, a couple of the officers actually realised they weren't strong enough, so they lashed a couple of them together. And then it's a chap by the name of German officer in the CMR. He's 20 years of age. It's um, Charles Springer, a lieutenant. He, um, he's the first man up. So he's going up this ladder in what appears to be the right place, you know, he could get to the top and be faced with a cliff, but he doesn't. They they do put it in the in the right location, and as he climbs up, as soon as he gets to the, the top, he's faced with the Paputi, and they're like staring at each other in a split second. It's like who's going to fire first? And Springer fires a fatal round and kills his chap, 
and swiftly lunges over that wall and is in the first position straight after him like lightning quick as a, as a chap called um, George McMullen, who's also an officer, a very, very heavy-handed individual. Um, he'd actually been under arrest for um, punching out and breaking the jaw of one of his soldiers. Um, not, not a nice character at all, but his second man up. And within seconds, you got, you know, three, four, five. And before they knew it, they had about 100 men on the mountain. This is rapid movement. They, they really caught the Paputhi by, by surprise. And um, they got out an extended line. They fixed bayonets and they started to assault towards the, the front of the mountain where the main defences were and up towards what became as the, the crown, which is, if you're looking at the mound, it's this apex point. Today, there's a massive cross up there. Um, and they swiftly moved, moved forward. And, you know, that the fighting was, was brutal. There, there was a correspondent who he was also a volunteer officer that was up there, a chap by the name of George Hay. And he said the fighting for 10 minutes was hot as, you know, possibly could be imagined. And as soon as these hundred odd CMR silhouetted, the men at the, the who was at the, the base, um, which was the Wodehouse Border Guards um, under a chap by the name of Mullenbeek, they dashed forward, came under a little bit of fine for the first time ever. They, they ripped through those first defences pretty quick. But the fighting in the first line of defences was still. Um, hard contested, and um, that there was um, one of Morosi's sons, the Chief Latuka, was down there fighting, with, and they found they found him after they finally killed him. He went down fighting very, very hard. He had a, a FAMP, you know, Thunder Armada Police, Snyder Carbine. He was wearing a, um, a bandolier. And there was a, a Wodehouse Border Guard corporal chap by the name of Neville, that, that managed to get up over the wall. And he was engaged with um, in hand-to-hand -hand fighting with a, a chap that the, the guys had dubbed as, the colonial soldiers had dubbed as Jonas. So the whole siege, they believed it was a white man up there. It was actually an albino, but there was a white man that lived with the Baputhi. He'd escaped from the Aliwal jail years before. And they believed it was him, but this guy was a really good shot. And for a while there, they said at the saddle that every time anybody exposed himself, Jonas would get a shot off. And, you know, it, there was a bit of banter. And, and yeah, they said, you know, the guy that gets Jonas needs a pat on the back because, you know, this guy's made life hell for us, the whole campaign. But, you know, this um, Jonas, I did find, I can't recall at the top of my believe I found what his real name was. And I've got it in the book. I just can't recall it right now. So him and um, this Corporal Neville are end up in this hand-to-hand -hand fighting and um, jo Jonas goes down. And they say later on that it was a ghastly sight, um, see, seeing his body. They could clearly tell that he went down fighting. And that, that first line's taken. And now at this stage, everybody's blood's up. You know, they, they, they do not want to be pushed off this mountain. And I believe that, that some of the, um, the CMR, possibly those that arrived later, got out of hand, um, but they weren't taking prisoners. And 
the Maputhi went down fighting. Um, Morosi was killed at the back of the mountain. There was a chap by the name of um, Private Whitehead who didn't realise he was fighting. He said he saw three Baputhi move down into a cave and, and with himself and another private, they followed him. They had to drop down onto a ledge and this other chap was killed, no, wounded, sorry, went down wounded and then Whitehead became ended up in a firefight between them and he shot one of the um, Baputhi. Then he, really, he shot the other one, didn't realise it was Morosi. And um, the, the other chap escaped, and that was Doda, and he escaped. Ah, the famous wanted son. Yeah, and for a long time the Cape government said, oh, he was killed, but he wasn't. There was all sorts of reports, and, you know, there's a story in, in that, that chap for sure, but, you know, he, he escaped off the mountain. And um, it was over in minutes, really. Um, you know, there, there was one colonial soldier killed, seven wounded, and the Baputhi lost 70 up there um, on, on the mountain. They, they went down fighting really hard. And then, you know, Morosi had a price on his head. And it was actually that Corporal Neville that heard Whitehead later on saying, well, I killed this chap at the top and maybe that was him. And this Neville heard that and quickly raced up and got the body and he got the reward. And Whitehead received a reward for bravery later on and also for his part in, in bringing it to an end. Um, he put the money through the, over the canteen, he said, whether there was alcohol or not, I'm sure, but he said he put the money in the canteen for the troop um, and Neville, um, he, he took the, the £200 um, bounty. But, you know, so that's the end of the campaign. Wow. So am I right in thinking Morosi's head was removed, it was cut off? Yeah. I was just going to get on to that because, you know, in, the, in my researching this campaign and being fascinated with it for years, and more and more I, I dig, you know, you, the handling of it from the Cape government. So it should never never have happened in the first place. You know, it should have been done, you know, with, with they should have persevered with the diplomacy. But, but right at the end, that... McMullen that I mentioned earlier on, um, he was cited as shooting prisoners, men that were surrendering, he, and you know, which was quite deplorable. And later on, when Springer, um, that Bourne was made a brevet major on the spot, and then Springer was like a full-on hope kind of reward. Springer was made a, a captain. He's later killed at Beppner, actually, in, in the Anglo-Ball War, um, Springer, when he was a major in the CMR. Um, but McMullen was not. McMullen was pending a charge. It was only when Jarvis got to the mountain, he said, why, why is he under arrest? And as it well, he broke the jaw of one of his men. And he said, well, you can't have him sitting here doing nothing. And he he took part in the, in the assault. Um, but the government gave him nothing. They basically said no. This man's in the sin bin, you know, and he didn't get, he wasn't promoted at all. And and he receives no further promotion. He ends up, I suppose, being pushed out of the, the CMR. He leaves in 1883. But as to Morosi himself, now, they, they when they recover his body, his body was brought down to 
where I, I gather would be that Sodwall uh, makeshift hospital down in the um, where the headquarter camp was. And you, I'll send you the photo later on. You can see that camp, what it looks like about the time of the um, the Brabant tenure of command. And the body was handed over to Dr Cumming and Surgeon Hartley. And they removed their head for what they said was, you know, medical purposes, medical study. Now, it's been said, though, that's the way that they did things at the times, but maybe in the medical community, but definitely everybody else was really annoyed at this thing. Um, Sprigg couldn't believe what he was reading. The newspapers were all over it. And even to some extent, they even said, no, his hands were removed as well, as well and his ears. Um, and Bailey himself, he was up on the mountain that day. He was up there briefly um, wearing a, a deer stalker hat, they said. He was up there, they raised the flag. He said to everybody, well done, and he basically got on his horse and got out of there. You know, it was all over, a very ugly event for them all. But he was criticised for leaving when all this was going on. But he later said, admitted, he denied knowing about the head being removed, but he did say that he handed the body over to a doctor coming and Hartley. And then they later say that the body was taken and buried on the side of the mountain. And it was in 1880, somebody said, no, his head's still in the, the custody of Dr. Cumming. He, he was in one of the, the frontier, maybe at King Williamstown or somewhere like that. Um, but the media were all over this, and well into the next year, they were still demanding an explanation. Um, some of the soldiers that heard about it were really annoyed, because this is another thing that I've noticed in all my research. I've never seen any soldier say a bad word about Morosi or the Baputhi. You know, almost... Yeah, yeah, completely. So I think when um, David Hooker, who, who was a former CMR captain and then he was a magistrate out at Herschel and he had played a big part in the campaign and he was in at least two of the assaults, including the final one. You know, he'd, he'd known Morosi for a number of years and had a lot of respect for him. Um, but you never read anything about them, you know, think that you know that they despised them. Yeah, you know, okay, they were momentarily an enemy, really. Um, the soldiers went and did their job, and Morosi did what he believed, but they still respected them. But you know, it, it was said that he should have been buried as a soldier for defending his mount, mountain, you know, bravely when he was still alive. That was the general belief. The media, very much so. I know the Natal witness; they harped on about this for a very long time. And they're even lobbying Sabatel Frere and said, you're the man to get a court of inquiry going about this. But at that stage, um, Brabant, sorry, Bailey was the man of the moment and been given a CMG. He was in command, ultimately responsible. Um, Dr Cumming was an old veteran campaigner and had, I suppose they could see no point in, in trashing his reputation and hardly had been given a VC. Right. So very, very grim, very ugly. And that, that last 24 hours was very, very violent at that mountain. Yeah. You know, there's no other way to wrap it up. Yeah. I mean, so just a few quick follow-up questions. While we're talking about Morosi, I know you and I have spoken offline before about 
you know, what you've learned about him and his skills as a tactician and as a commander. Could you just sum up for us how good he was and how good his men were uh, to be able to put up such a long fight? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you look at the man and all his experience, everything he's seen, right, in, in his life, right back to the days of Sharka, I mean, he's got so much cumulative knowledge they've built up and you know, he was a smart operator. He witnessed the effect of the artillery. So he, his walls were built at that mountain to withstand artillery rounds, and they did. They only blew them up with dynamite. That was actually Bailey's parting orders. Get a load of dynamite up here and destroy everything. They had to blow it to pieces with dynamite. You know, they were so so um, well built. His supply chain you know, was admirable. He had caches of supply and grain all, all over his, all up and down the Orange River. He was bringing it in under the noses of the, um, of the all the commanders and the colonials there. He got livestock up there. He was recycling ammunition. <laughs> you know, he had water storage catchments up there, catchments. You can still see them today. When you're up there, you think, well, there's a lot of water to be um, stored up there. Um, he had a lot of loyalty, obviously, because of the, the vastness of the size of his family. But he, I think he's a very, very impressive character. And one of the things that I really wish we had of him was a really good photo of him. There's a lot of descriptions of him. Um, but I think, the, you know, the Baputhi have got to be incredibly proud of, you know, the tenacity of this guy. Because if you look at the reverse... If that was a British regiment up on that mountain, you know, you'd be hearing about it forever, you know, for, for how long he, he was he withheld, he held out, you know, for nine months, basically. Very impressive. You know, so you, you, you've got to take your hat off to the guy. Yeah. Um, and and then, less for the, the colonials, of course. Yeah, I mean, just just very briefly, then, just give us uh, an upshot of what happened next uh, in in terms of uh, I don't know what you would call it the the Baputi's land, and then also for the for the regiments who fought there. What was the immediate future for all of those? So that the government basically denuded it of all population. They left a couple of troops to police it, and the reports that you read is we rode for three days and we saw no one. Then they started to issue passes for people to come back in. Then the, the lands were handed over to the Basutu, excuse me, handed over to the Basutu, and they took over. And the, the remnants of the Baputhi um, eventually moved, moved back in. And then, of course, you know, the guys like Leratoli could see what was how ineffective the Cape government were fighting. And bearing in mind, Sprig, after he left um, Morosi at the mountain, rode up and reminded the, the, the Sutu that their weapons are coming next, and they actually already asked for them. So, Sprig was the prime minister, wasn't he, of the Cape? Yeah. Is that right? So, yeah. So they they saw how ineffective the um, the Cape forces were, and then of course, you know, by October eighteen eighty, they're in a rebellion as well. You know, and then it rolls on and we're in modern days with Sutu. So this is like how the dominoes fell with this one. Yeah. So that's a story you and I must talk about another time, I think. 
<laughs> yep, yep, all, all the same characters, mate. <laughs> yeah. And a lot, a lot out of the Zulu War as well. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, one last very quick question, and we can keep this super short. Yep. Uh, misconception that Alan Wilson, the famous man who was killed leading that patrol over the Shangani River, the Shangani Patrol, uh, had fought in the Zulu War, but your research perhaps says otherwise. Could you fill us in on uh, where Alan Wilson was actually fighting during the Zulu War? Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that this belief of the Zulu War comes about because of the campaign medal. You know, I even read a, a book um, published last year and it was still referring to anybody who was fighting in 1879 was in the Zulu Wars. Well, it, well it's not. You know, there was a number of campaigns going on in 1879. And then, of course, immediately after this, we've got Sekakuni as well. He's finally defeated, you know, under Wolseley. Um, so when people see the medal with the 1879 clasp, they naturally assume it's Zulu Wars. Um, but it's not so. So his story in, in arriving in South Africa, he joins the Front Around Mounted Police um, as a recruit off the Roman, the RMS Roman arrives and he joins up on 1st of January 1878. Um, and he, he's a he's a third, comes in as a third class private. He, even the rank of trooper is never used in the CMR, but, but Brown VC is referred to in the Gazette as being a trooper, but he wasn't. They didn't use that rank. So he he soldiers with the fam for the remainder of the Ninth Frontier War. He's in number two troop. Then he goes briefly to the artillery troop. Um, and then at the time of the Morosi campaign, he's one of these guys that come up under Bailey and he was at the depot troop then. And so he arrives, you know, like later on, he'd been promoted to corporal in July and he arrives at the mountain. And for his part in the final assault, he'd just been promoted to third-class sergeant, actually, on 1st of November. But for his part in the, um, in the campaign, he's actually given a um, monetary reward, which is a part of the bylaws for the CMR, that they, would receive, they could receive monetary awards. And there was a lot of these handed out at the end of it. So, no, he wasn't in the Zulu War. Um, he rolls on and, and is a part of right wing. He's a second-class sergeant. And then in the gun war, he's discharged as time expired on the 31st of March, 1881, and he joins the very next day. He's commissioned in the native levy at Maseru. Um, then that rolls on. He becomes an officer in the Pseudo Border Police, then he's in the Bekuanland expedition in 84-85 and he, he's in the um, he becomes a concession hunter and involved with mining later on. But he but was, not before. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Yep. Yeah. It's, no, it's yeah. interesting. I think it's one of those things that gets into one of the uh, you know, the old uh, books from, you know, maybe the late 19th century. And then, you know, that source keeps getting repeated and repeated, doesn't it? And, and then you're, you're yep. delving into the archives, you know, reveals the truth, which is why what you do is so important. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's all these inherent mistakes that, that keep popping up. And, and it's hard to break, break that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, 
can you tell us, Cam, just quickly, you're writing a book about all of this. When, when might people be able to get their hands on it? Do you, do you have a, an idea yet? Uh, listen, I've 99% got it then. It's just wrapping out a few details that um, location of Muldoon's grave or cave, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I suppose uh, making it, you, you know, um, getting all the facts in and making it more readable. And, of course, is that the VC guys as well. I'm doing a lot of research on those guys, how they got their VC. It's a, you know, interesting story in those guys in itself and just how that happened, you know, how yeah. they, they come about getting the VCs. If people want to find you, I believe you've now got an author page on uh, Amazon and people can buy some of your books. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, did you just look under Cameron V. Simpson. Cameron V. Simpson. Yep. And hopefully in due course during 2023, there might be a nice book about Morosi's Mountain on there. It surely will be with a, <laughs> with a few others to follow. There's a lot going on. That was brilliant, wasn't it? Thanks to Cam for another excellent and detailed talk. I must say, I really do love discussing military history with him. He has to be probably the most knowledgeable person I know when talking about this era. You'll be glad to hear he'll be back in a couple of weeks to dive into more detail about the three men who won VCs at Morosi's Mountain. Please subscribe to make sure you don't miss that. Until then, take care, and I'll see you back on the mountain soon.